The last few weeks, we've talked about this series called Great Expectations. And the idea for this series was to point to Jesus and the coming of Jesus as we get to December and the celebration of Christmas and the birth of Christ. Great Expectations is about Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament uh, scripture that points to Jesus. And so last week, we talked about Abram, and that word means exalted father or high father, who became Abraham, which means father of a multitude or father of many nations. And so the promises that God made to Abraham, we're going to review those in just one second, are fulfilled through Jesus. Just like the weeks prior, we talked about Noah and the covenant that God made with Noah That covenant and those promises are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And even before that, we talked about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the Edenic covenant and the promises that God makes to Adam and Eve are fulfilled through Jesus. So if you're picking up a certain pattern here, we're going through these different covenants that God made with his people and examining how each one of these promises point to Jesus and who Jesus is and the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so our idea was, as we get toward the holiday season, because every church in America pretty much is going to be talking about the story of the birth of Christ, which is a great story. But I feel like, and we talked about this the first week, a lot of people view it as two different sections. There's the Old Testament and the Old Way, and then there's this newfangled Testament and a whole new story. But what I'm trying to say and what we're trying to examine is how they're connected. And so today we're going to talk about Moses. Not the story of Moses, not who he was, not going up to get the Ten Commandments, but the promises that God made to the Israelites through Moses. And we're going to talk about how Jesus fulfills those promises. So first I want to look back to uh, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And this was what we talked about last week. And I'll read it to you now. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell down in the ground. And then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you. From generation to generation, this is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, and to you, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. That's pretty much the, the cliff notes of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. You'll be a father, not just one father, not just the father of one child, which if you know the story, Abraham and his wife Sarah couldn't have children. But you're going to be the father of many nations. God told him to look up at the stars and your descendants will be as, as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach. And Abraham believed him, and Abraham was obedient, even to the point where he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, which we talked about last week. So then when does the Mosaic Covenant come into play? The Mosaic Covenant is struck when God delivers the law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the main part of the law. Here's an actual photo of the Ten Commandments. Wow. Yes, imagine that. I don't know why when they did a Google search for the Ten Commandments, there's all these stone tablets and people have carved stuff. It's amazing how people do things. And yeah, I'm like, I'm really interesting about this is that uh, Moses wrote it in English. 
Yes, amazing, amazing. And Roman numerals, even. Yes. Yeah. And he had an iPhone. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. Having never been to Rome. Mm hmm. But uh, the, the Ten Commandments and the law are kind of the backbone of the Mosaic Covenant. So I'm going to start there. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. Uh, if you have your Bibles, follow along. If you have the app, I'm sorry. We did not update the app today. So you're just going to have to listen to me. I apologize, Conrad. I was busy practicing bass up here. Um, listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving to you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with the large, prosperous cities that you did not build. So what is he saying? Hey guys, this is the law. These are the rules. Follow these rules. Do what this says. Put it on, your, on your, the doors of your house, on the gates of your yard. Put it on your doorpost. Write it on your forehead. Do whatever you got to do to remember these rules, to remember these instructions. Because if you do, if you can obey these instructions, if you can live a life according to these rules, then you will get these blessings. Then you will inherit these promises that I made to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what we're saying is, hey, this is what we have to do to please God. This is what we have to do to live a holy life. This is what we have to do to fulfill our part of this promise of the promised land. But notice God didn't say when that was going to happen. God said, if you obey these, these laws, you obey these rules, then you'll have access. You'll be able to get to the land of Canaan and so on and so forth, great cities. But he didn't say when. And the reason why I bring that up is because the Israelites, the people were notoriously... Ignorant. How about that? Where they would obey for a little while. We talked about this. Shane talked about this in the book of Judges. You obey for a little while. Things are going good. Something happens. They get overthrown. They get overtaken. They cry out to the Lord for a deliverer or a judge. The judge comes in, saves the day. They listen for a little while. And then they go right back into that cycle of sin, which is what most of us do, which is what all of us do. But if we look at Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 8. This is what they say, what God says. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message that you must give to the people of Israel. God is calling them. I'm sorry. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded. And all the people responded together. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. What's going on here? God is speaking to Moses. Moses is their chosen representative. Moses goes up on the mountain Mount Sinai and talks to the Lord. God says, tell them, obey my rules and don't have all my promises. Moses comes down and says, hey guys, these are the rules. Are you willing to obey them? And the Israelites say, yes, of course we will. God is awesome. He brought us out of Egypt. Look at the cloud and the pillar of fire and this amazing manna from heaven. We're, we're good. We will listen. This is awesome. Yes. And Moses does what? He takes the people's answer back up to the Lord and he goes and tells them, hey Lord, they all said yes. But what is God asking them to do? What is God asking them to be? Key words in that scripture are what? 
my treasured possession, my favorite among all the peoples of the earth. God is saying, you guys are my chosen, special, favorite people. Why? He made a, a promise to Abraham because of Abraham's obedience, which Abraham was a descendant of Shem, Shem who was the son of Noah, because of Noah's righteousness and Noah's obedience. And because Noah was a descendant of Seth, who was the son of Adam and Eve, and the promise that God made back in the Garden of Eden, are you seeing the pattern here? God is saying, hey, if you do this, we're good. I'll deliver on my part of the deal. If you listen, you're going to be just fine. And what happens? And what happens? And what happens? So now we get down here, where we're receiving the law. We're receiving the details of the covenant, the instructions. God is giving them a job. God is saying, I've chosen you as my special people, and now this is what I expect of you. This is your responsibility. This is what you have to do to keep up your half of the deal. Now, they've already seen miraculous wonders. They know that God is powerful. They know that God is with them. And God is saying, okay, now this is your part of the deal. This is what you have to do to keep up your end of the promises. He says, my treasured possession. He also says, a kingdom of priests. Priests. What does that mean? Are they all pastors? Are they all preaching the gospel? Are they all teaching in the synagogue or in the temples? He says, you're my chosen treasured possession. I want you to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. Then he says, a holy nation. But what does holy mean? God's calling them to be, first of all, they're special, his treasured possession. Secondly, priests. And third, a holy nation. What does it mean to be holy? The word holy literally means to be set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for God's services. Set apart for what God needs you to do. So again, it goes back to their job. I want you, you guys are my treasured possession. I want you to be a holy nation. I want you to be different from everyone else. I want you to be set apart, different, special, away from everything that's going on in the world. And then your job is you're going to be a priest. What is the job of a priest? I know one of our professors at Vanguard said it's to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. I'm going to say that again. The role of a priest is to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. Moses is doing the work of a priest. He's coming down the mountain and saying, this is what God wants from you. As far as they know, Moses is God's right-hand man. I don't know if you remember this part, but Moses came down from Mount Sinai and his face was shining. He was changed. He was so blind. They made him wear a mask. They made him wear a, a, a covering so they couldn't because his radiance, his brilliance was so bright having been in the presence of the Lord. They were intimidated of him. Moses was kind of next to God for them. He could go up on this mountain that's shaking with thunder and lightning and rumbling and he comes back. And not only does he come back, but he comes back changed. And he's like, this is what God wants. I'm like, sure, man, whatever you say. You got God's cell phone number. You're good. And then he goes back up the mountain and he goes back and says, this is what the people want. This is what the people have agreed to. This is what the people have said. So a priest role is to represent God to the people. Moses comes down and says, this is what God wants. And then he goes back to God and he says, this is what the people need. This is what the people want. This is what the people are afraid of. These are our concerns. Remember when they didn't have water, God, Moses goes and says, Lord, we don't have water. God says, what? Talk to the rock. Remember that? Every time there was a need, we want meat. God sends meat. All these things, when Moses would go to God and say, the people are frustrated, they're sick of this manna, they want meat, God provides meat. The people are worried they don't have water, God provides water. 
So Moses is the go-between. He's the mediator between God and the people. The priest's job is that of a mediator. To intercede. What God is asking the people to be is to be his representatives. To be his witnesses. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you everything you want. I'm going to bless you beyond belief. But what I want you to do is I want you to represent me to all the people in the world. So I want you to represent me to the world. And I want when people to look at you, I want them to see me. God gives three types of law. He gives moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. And all these rules and guidelines, 613 total, make up what they call the book of the covenant. They actually say this in Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. We will obey. If you've read the Bible at all, you know that's not true. You know that not very long after this, they make a, an idol, a golden calf, and things go bad really quickly. But one of the key elements in this book of the covenant, one of the key elements in this law is the instruction and the order to sacrifice. A key element is, is a blood sacrifice. Let me explain. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says, God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is by the blood, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. This is a different translation than I normally use, but the word atonement is very important. The reason why, if we go to Hebrews chapter 9.22, he says, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The Hebrew word for atonement means covering of sin, not the removal of sin. So even though the Israelite people were sinful, even though they messed up and they did things the wrong way, the the required practice to be forgiven was to sacrifice some sort of animal on this altar and the blood of the animal atoned or covered their sins. It didn't remove the sin, it covered the sin. So for years... Centuries even, they had this practice of sacrificing animals. They would go before the Lord and sacrifice a sheep or a ram or whatever it was. And and the blood of this animal, this, this innocent animal, covered the sin that they had committed. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. The author of Hebrews, he writes, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. What does that mean? The sacrificial sacrificial system was imperfect because no matter what it did, it just covered. It didn't forgive, it didn't remove, it just covered. So think about this for a minute. You're living in Old Town Israel, and every so often, you have to go sacrifice one of your livestock. Because you know you messed up this week. You know you did something you weren't supposed to do. You broke one of the 613 rules in the book of law. So you take your sheep, and you go and put it on the altar, and you kill them, and you're like, man, I really could have used that sheep. I really could have used that wool. I could have used that meat. But I messed up. Here you go, Lord. See you next week. The change wasn't lasting. Because again, they weren't removing anything. What were they doing? They were just 
covering. This is a temporary fix. We're going to cover the things that we do wrong. We're going to cover our sin with this poor animal sacrifice. And that's going to buy us a little bit more time before God. God adds the Mosaic Covenant alongside its predecessor to provide guidelines for the people of Israel on how to conduct their lives and how to be protected. This is from the book we've been going through. It's called uh, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, the Emmaus Code, by David Limbaugh. These are his words. God added the Mosaic Covenant alongside its predecessor, the Abrahamic Covenant. So let's remember, the Abrahamic promise was, we're going to give you descendants, you're going to be great, it literally said you're going to be famous and you're going to have wealth and there'll be kings that are going to come from your line. This is going to be awesome. And then the Mosaic Covenant says, don't do these 613 things. And if you do, sacrifice one of your best animals to pay for your crimes. So we have a wonderful promise of wealth and prosperity and then we have this other rule of how to atone or how to cover when we mess up when we don't hold up our end of the deal. This, this law, these covenants, go hand in hand because they're guidelines for the people of Israel on how to conduct their lives. The law is not given as a means to salvation. What is salvation? It's forgiveness, the ultimate forgiveness. It's to be saved. It's to have your, your righteousness ensured. It's not a covering, but a removal. But the law is not there to remove their sins. The law is there to give them a guideline or to give them some structure so that they can live in God's design as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests, as a set-apart people. So they kind of go hand in hand. Well, they definitely go hand in hand because we know what God has promised us and we have to hold up our end of the deal. The problem is we can't hold up our end of the deal. The problem was, the problem is, the problem will forever be that human people, we are flawed, depraved, if you will. We cannot, as Adam and Eve could not, as the people in Noah's time could not, hold up our end of the bargain in the way that God would be pleased with. Galatians 3, 19. So why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Verse 24. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. What does that mean? It was our guardian. How is the law, how is this set of rules, this structure that we really couldn't keep, a guardian? Well, remember what Jesus said when they got to the promised land. Do not marry with these other people. Don't marry them. In fact, he told them, wipe them all out. They didn't wipe them out. They made a treaty. Then what happened? Those people intermarried with their people, and then they started worshiping other gods. Other things started happening. They didn't keep their end of the deal. God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Remember the old school King James? Thou shalt. Have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. And the first thing they did is what? Well, look over there. Damn. And they married other people. Hey, girl, who's your guy? Oh, my God, this guy. Cool. I like him too. Right? They compromised their values over and over again. So what was the law for? The law was a reminder. 
It was like the guardrails. You ever play bowl, you ever go bumper bowling with your little kids? Because you know if you, if you bowl without the bumpers and you have a kid, all it's gonna do is gutter, right? Just gutter ball all day long. And so what you do is you go to the front and you say, can you please turn the bumpers on on lane 19 or my kid's gonna cry. I said that too, but I don't have to Well, that's because you're terrible. That's right. But then, so you go to the there and he rolls this terrible ball that just has gutter ball written all over it. But thank God for the bumpers. Because the bumpers are going to knock it right back in the center. And right back in the center. And you might not get a strike. You might not hit dead center, but you're at least going to make it down the lane. Without the bumpers, what would happen? Gutter ball. You're off the game, zero points, you're going home with nothing. The law is like those bumpers. The law is like the guardrail to keep you moving down the path. Moving down the path toward what? To the child that was promised. Christmas time, we celebrate the child that was promised. That was the whole purpose of this series was to prepare us and get us thinking about how the Old Testament is telling us about the coming of Jesus. Because guess what? In about a month, you're not going to be able to avoid Jesus. And it might be wrapped up in a different wrapper. It might have some Santa on it. It might have some snow. But I promise you, the entire world stops on this certain time of year that we celebrate, because it wasn't December 25th, but we celebrate the birth of Jesus. People who don't even believe in God say things like, peace on earth, good will toward men. They give more money. They volunteer their time. They give gifts and Christmas turkeys and they volunteer at homeless shelters. The whole world changes because they know, whether consciously or subconsciously, they know there's something special about this time. And what's special about this time is the person that we are celebrating. And the reason why we're celebrating him is because of the thousands and thousands of years that they tried to do it on their own and they couldn't. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. Actually, I'm going to go back one. This is another quote. The Old Testament thus reaches out in longing for Christ, who brings an end to its frustrations and brings to accomplishment its promises. Christ is the final offering to which all the animal sacrifices look forward. Think about that last bit for a second. Christ is the final offering. So they've been doing this for thousands of years, sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing. And again, that atonement is not a removal, it's a covering. But they're doing this. The Old Testament reaches out in longing for Christ. I love the way he words that. Reaches out in longing for Christ because we see repeatedly throughout the Old Testament how... No one can measure up. No one can keep the, the standard that God has set. The whole rule, if you remember last week we talked about Abraham, Abraham didn't have to necessarily do anything to hold up his end of the bargain. Noah didn't have to do anything to hold up his end of the bargain. Remember last week we talked about God made a covenant with himself. Abraham was put into a deep sleep. God walked through that ceremonial covenant ceremony saying, I'm going to do this for you, Abraham. He swore unto himself. Now God has this Mosaic covenant and says, this is what you have to do. This is how you must be obedient. This is how you will achieve what I set out for you so that I can hold up my end of the deal and bless you with all these things. But nobody was able to pull it off. No one. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. So Christ has now become the what? The high priest. Remember, we're a nation of priests. A holy nation set apart. But now Jesus Christ has become the high priest 
over all the good things that have come, he has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once and for all time and secured our redemption forever. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I get excited. I read that, and it's like the, uh, it's like the climax of a movie. You know when the guy's trying to, you know, I'm trying to pick an easy movie, Star Wars, they're going to blow up the Death Star. It's when they finally blow up the Death Star, you go, oh, they did it. It happened. Wow. Everything we've been watching and building toward has led to this moment, and wow, it worked out for them. That's how it is to the Old Testament to me. We're reading all these things, these people, and all these wonderful stories of, of success and failures and imperfect people. But throughout that whole process, God has a plan, and it's pointing toward one big, culminating, Death Star-like event. And we celebrate it in December. Well, technically, I guess we celebrate it in April or Easter. But the first part of it, we celebrate in December. Here's the thing. Jesus fulfills the Mosaic Covenant wholly and perfectly by living a sinless life and bearing its curse for our failure to do so, thereby making it or making himself a perfect sacrifice. Let me explain this one more time. We had to go into the tabernacle or go to the altar and burn innocent animals to cover our sins, but because Jesus was obedient, because he lived a perfect sinless life, he was a perfect sacrifice that could not just cover the sins, but remove the sins, and we could enter into a relationship with God where we were sinless, we were blameless, salvation, we were saved. Christ's blood on the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of this blood covenant arrangement, this blood requirement seen in the Old Testament with all the animal sacrifices and and the direction of the law. So when I read about Moses, or I think about the Ten Commandments, or I think about the 613 rules or laws in the Book of the Covenant that people had to follow in order to try to be perfect, of which no one succeeded, we needed a savior. We needed a hero. We needed someone who could do it, someone who who was the Luke Skywalker to the Darth Vader, right, if we're going to go back to the Star Wars reference. We needed someone who was perfect. What do we do with this information? How do we change the way we walk or the way that we live or the way that we read the Bible knowing anything? I mean, maybe you've heard all this before, but I was blown away when I was reading this. I'm like, wow, this is amazing how it's all connected. I'll tell you what. I used to go to a church when I was a kid. It was a, I call it a fire and brimstone church. It was very legalistic. And I remember every day I was very prayerful. I was prayerfully active because every day I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get struck down and it's all going to be over, right? So every day, oh God, you know, you lied to a teacher or something, like, oh Lord, forgive me. It was this constant, constant fear, this constant clenching and like discomfort at the judgment and the wrath and the, the pain that I was owed based on what I heard every Sunday, based on what I knew of the Bible. And all I knew were these rules. All I knew were the rules. And so what I used to say before and what I've said a couple times here is we have to not focus so much on the rules but focus on the relationship. Does that mean the rules are gone? No. There's value in the Old Testament. There's value in the Book of the Covenant. There's value in the law. Jesus Christ didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled the law. 
But when I look at it as one big story, which is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, one continuous story about the redemption of God's creation, of which we are part, I see the imperfection of man. I see how, how short we've fallen, how, how far away from God's standard we are. And then I imagine how perfect Jesus was. And despite living this perfect life, Despite doing everything right, he was still killed. He was still sacrificed. There's a quote by Charles Spurgeon, who's a great theologian if you don't know. And he asked, when asked about the law, what is the purpose of the law? Why do we have the law? The law is there to remind us what God expects of us to keep us on the bumpers, just like the, uh, the, the bowling lanes. You know what, my son Donovan, he's not here tonight, he's at a birthday party. 16 years old, he took his driver's test this week. It did not go well. We worked with him, we worked with him, we reminded him, we gave him advice. Son, slow down. Son, stay in the center of the lane. Son, look both ways, make sure there's no cross traffic coming. Son. Don't do this. Son, don't do that. Son, turn on your blinker. Son, don't look so long over your shoulder that you're about to crash in the car in front of you, which is a real example on the way to the DMV to take the test. <laughs> I can tell you that as a father, I knew he wasn't going to pass. I knew he wasn't going to pass because he wasn't listening to the things that I was telling him to do. Not only that, but when he had to look and look at him, I didn't him all the laws. When we got to the driveway, he said, you know, show all the blinker and make sure all your stuff works. He had those hand signals, right? So it's like right, left, and then slow down and stop. But he didn't do this. He didn't do a slow down and stop. He did like some kind of like halfway thing. And the guy's like, it's like this. And the guy's telling him, like, come on, man. He almost fell before we even left, right? Because he didn't do a proper slow down and stop signal. And I asked him, like, didn't you see that in the little book, like the study book? And he's like, I don't know. He was so focused on getting this milestone and passing his test, he wasn't even looking at the book. He wasn't even looking at the reference of the guidelines. And when the people who know better were telling him how to drive, he had it all figured out. Me and my wife were telling him, look, man, you got to do this, X, Y, and Z. But then he went and drove with the uh, behind-the-wheel people, the people you pay. And they gave him some tips on how to, you know, look dramatically, look as you're scanning, so they know that you're scanning. I just don't want to crash. You know, he's trying to, to fine-tune things, and I'm trying to stay alive, right? <laughs> but we get to the test. And the guy gets in the car, and I said, all right, son, be safe. And the last thing I said is be smooth, because I wanted him to drive smooth and turn smoothly, because he was kind of choppy. And we get back, and the examiner walks in, and he looks at me and goes, well, he didn't listen to you. He wasn't smooth. <laughs> Dead serious. So the first thing he said, and I was like, ooh, that's cool, right? And he's like, yeah, he's got to leave. And he said, he's a little more practice, Dad. He didn't listen to you. He wasn't smooth. And I thought, oh. And he was crushed. He cried. They don't tell us. But he cried because he wanted to achieve this, this milestone. He wanted to have this win. He wanted to have this victory. But the problem was he wasn't paying attention to the rules. He definitely wasn't listening to the people who'd been there before him. Just like the Old Testament is the law, it's the rules that are there to protect you from yourself. Not only protect you for your benefit, but for the benefit of everyone because we're not just us, we're priests. We're, we're representatives of God. So the law is our 
study guide. The law is our bumpers in the bowling alley. The law is the book that my son did not read, which is why he did not pass. He's not here, so I can say that. <laughs> in that same spirit, God has called us to follow these rules because this is his design. This is what would be perfect. How do you have a perfect behind-the-wheel road test? you got to practice. Not only do you have to practice, but you have to listen and understand and know the rules so that you can apply the rules and so you don't break the rules and so there's value in the rule book. I guarantee you my son doesn't know where his rule book is right now. Do you know where yours is? Spurgeon says, the spirit of the law condemns us as this is its useful property. It humbles us, makes us know we are guilty, and so we are led to receive the Savior. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. I'm going to say that again. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. For it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its most powerful weapon when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from the schoolmaster or the guardian that is to bring me to Christ. Say that again. You've taken away the schoolmaster that is to bring me to Christ. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. If we didn't know what the law was, how would we know that we need a savior? If we didn't know what God expected of us, how would we know that we're coming up short? And if we don't know that we're coming up short, how do we know that we need Jesus? The law is not old. The law is not obsolete. The Ten Commandments didn't go away. In fact, they're repeated multiple times in the New Testament. Jesus teaches all the same things that you read in the Old Testament. Adultery, murder, loving your neighbor, honoring your parents. Those things are restated over and over in the New Testament. It did not go away. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish the law. So back to my previous question. What are we supposed to do with this information? Well, if we go back to what God asked us to do, we're supposed to be his representatives, his priests, his witnesses. We're entering a time that I think is probably one of the best times to evangelize because people are in a mindset of love, of compassion. Even Jesus. You ever notice all the Christmas songs talk about Jesus and people just sing them? Let them think about it. Even your most atheist homie is singing O Little Town of Bethlehem, right? I think there's an opportunity in this season to share the gospel and to be a representative because we're supposed to make that introduction. We were called to be a holy nation. We were called to be a royal priesthood. And so what's expected of us is to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then come up. I guess that includes me this week. The Holy Spirit is a source of empowerment 
to do the job that we've been called to do as priests, as representatives, as ministers, as people who are called to share who God is with the people as set-apart individuals. What does that mean? Before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he told us, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what I told you to do way back in the Old Testament, the olden days when we gave you the law. Be a royal priesthood. Be a holy nation. Be set apart. Set apart for what? For my use. Be set apart to do the work that I called you to do. And if you can do this successfully, you will inherit all the rewards that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Joseph. All these things are yours if you are willing to do the job that I called you to do. And all of us fell short. None of us could do the job properly. Only Jesus could do the job the way that God designed it. And because he was perfect and because he was sacrificed, we can inherit those promises given to Abraham. We can inherit those promises given to Noah. We can inherit those promises made to Adam and Eve in the garden. The the glory and the blessings and the riches are ours. If through faith, Through Jesus Christ, you are willing to hold up your end of the bargain. It's not about sacrificing animals anymore. It's not about the 613 rules. It's about the relationship. It's about putting your trust in the person who did it right, the only person who ever could do it right. So if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is who he says he was, if you believe that he was sinless and he lived a perfect life, if you believe that he was crucified, that he died and on the third day was risen again and later ascended to heaven to the right hand of God, then you are are a son. As it says, you've been adopted into this relationship and all the, the glorious promises now belong to you. But before you get out of here, you still have a job. Before you can receive those blessings and those riches and those promises, you have work to do. When your job is, you are a priest. You are a representative. I'm calling you. I'm calling myself as God has called us, as the word calls us to be representatives of God to the people as his chosen people. Not chosen as the Israelites were, but chosen as the people who have heard and the people who have believed. You have a job to do. And there's no better time in the year, I think, than right now. So this week, Same thing I've said the last three or four weeks. Trust God. Trust his plan. Trust his timing. The second thing is be patient. If you think of the time that the law was given until the time that Jesus Christ arrived, there was a long time that people had to be patient and to trust God and to be faithful. And the third thing I'm going to tell you is to do what? Do your job. Do your job as a witness as a priest, as a chosen member of this holy nation, this royal priesthood, and represent your father to the world. Amen? We're going to sing one more song, and then we're going to get out of here.